Welcome to Episode 7 of Behind the Blade Podcast. This week, we're taking our news headlines courtesy of KnifeNews.com, and we're going to cover the ongoing story of Microtech versus KAI and Anthony Scalambrini. We've also got a history segment that absolutely ran amok and wrote itself. I'm very excited about this one. Stay tuned for that. In Tech Tips, we're going to be covering what goes into the making of a custom knife. This is something that will appeal to makers and customers alike. And of course, at the end, our favorite segment, the Q&As. Stay tuned. with you always <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're nerds get over it it happens <laughs> all right uh we, we've got a hell of a new segment ahead of us we do but, but i think maybe we should address the age-old question what you carrying buddy hey man i am carrying a spider co mule as boring as that sounds actually the spider co mule um i think is a little bit of an experiment for for, for spider co so what they do is they put out a fixed blade knife in a steel that I think that they're looking at trying out. This particular one I got a few years ago. It is in K390, similar to M390, but it but it's much more abrasion resistant. That and much to my chagrin, a lot more abrasion resistant, and it but it holds its edge forever. Matt, you saw the finish on this thing, right? Looks difficult to polish, buddy. It really does. It, and, and I know your capabilities in satining a blade after you convex it, and that looked like. An arduous task, to say the least. <laughs> this looks terrible. It looks like the very first knife I ever made. The polish is so bad on this thing. But, but man, it holds its edge. I mean, I don't know if you guys can hear this, but listen. You hear that? They're launching all over the table. Yeah, you can <laughs> see it from here. The hair is flying off, flying, flying off my arm. They're absolutely... It's, it's, it's a great knife. I think I did a pretty good job putting a handle on it. The handle is red and black maple barrel with a white liner. Nice. And, and uh, I enjoy it. I think it did pretty good. It did pretty good. It's, it's a great using knife. I had, I had no chipping problems, no edge loss for when I used it. Not at all. I like the steel a lot. It's just I can't put a good finish on it using my normal production method, so I had to pass. But it's still a good knife. Yeah, I so, think it's groovy. And it is, to my understanding, you know, we used um, – I'm from Colorado originally, and so I am in the circles of some of the spider co-cats and whatnot – and it's to my understanding, if I'm regurgitating this correctly, that you're 100% right. It's yeah. a testing blade that they mm -hmm. produce. And then they actually, Spyderco, uses these blades to test cuts in like oh. a laboratory environment. Oh, okay. And they put it they put it on, like a, on an arm that yep. just makes cuts. And they're just fixtured for that at, at their cool. geometry, at their you know basic specs. Mm -hmm. and, and then they sell them off to people as fixed blades that they go try it out and see huh. if they like the steel. Also. Okay. So, yeah, so, yeah. So pretty groovy. So what I did is I did not keep the regular Spyderco edge on here. I actually did a full convex all the way to the spine with you it. You convex a knife? Never. Uh, I only yeah. do it all the time. Yeah, speaking, speaking of entry number two, we have a Protec TR3 is my secondary knife. Um, I really think that this was designed as like a Chris Reeves, you know, Sabenza killer, which of course it didn't do. But this one's modified a little bit. This one, uh, you know, like I like I do, is convex, <laughs> like we just said. And the nylon spacers that were on it stock um, are actually phosphor bronze. I went to my went to my uh, went to my uh, spacer guy and uh, got some fresh spacers, and it just sails open right now. Things things for sure. Mm, absolutely, I love the engineering in this thing. I think it's really top notch stuff. It's really tight. It's a really really good execution of it. I like it a lot. If this would have come out first, do you think this 
that the Sabenza would then be second to this based on its engineering and function? You know what? I don't think so because I think the Sabenza has better lines. You know, and I, I got to agree. I mean, yeah. I think this is a tank of a knife, and I, I don't think it's aesthetically disappointing in any way. No. But I do – I have to – as a Sabenza owner – I mean, I would own one of these, but I'm not into redundancy when it comes to, like, the exact same I, knife. I've people. already got an S35 Yen titanium yeah. frame lock. <laughs> exactly, <good. laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, no, it's a hot knife, though. I think uh, Jesse Hemphill carries one of these, too. Oh, nice. Be quite honest. And, which he was astonished. He's not much of a pocket knife guy, per se, or folder <laughs> guy. Uh, but he seems to really like it, too. So, yeah, pretty hot little knife. It feels feels nice. Uh, I think the phosphor bronze washers get the thing. Oh, yeah, it makes it sail open. I mean, it's it's great. Um, I do what I, what I do really like about this knife, though, is I do like the engineering. I think the engineering is absolutely perfect. Um, I believe Protec wire EDMs all their parts. And I think that uh, I think they did an excellent job. I mean, you could even see where the wire was when they cut the lock in. I mean, like the, the line is so tight. Yeah. In case you guys don't know what wire EDM is, it's a very costly process. It's a machining process, if you want to call it that, where they pass. I think it's like a three or seven thousandths diameter wire yeah. uh, through a pre-popped hole, right. if you will. Mm-hmm. And then it it's called an electron discharge machine. If yes. I'm not wire mistaken. EDM. EDM. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So as that wire passes, it disintegrates only what that wire contacts. So what you have is a extraordinarily precise cut with virtually no kerf. So it never gets wider towards the bottom or further from the source. Does it duck foot out like you get more no, not at all. plasma and laser? Yeah. And yeah, it's it really a cool process. Very expensive, very expensive. So for Protec to step up and do that shows that they definitely cared about the precision and quality on this knife. Uh, yeah, totally. They they absolutely um, up to their game with this, and um, and it's a good knife. I do I do enjoy having it. I don't I don't know if I'm gonna sell it yet. If I do, I'll let you guys know first. <laughs> Custom Jim Stewart Protec TR3. I, I don't I don't know if I could like honestly sell this one though. So, uh, anyways, Matt. What are you carrying, good sir? Well, I got uh, Blast from the Past. I've got a 1980s model Victorinox Swiss Army knife. I think it's a champion. The champion. The champion. The champion. champion. Wow. This is this is the quintessential Swiss Army knife. Uh, you know, we see you know, when you conjure up an image as a child, the one that has all the gadgets and gizmos. I mean, the thing's <laughs> got to be pushing an inch in width at least oh i think i think it's, I think it's just a little bit over <laughs> yeah. an inch yeah that's huge uh it's man i think it's got like 19 tools plus or minus this is the same knife that i grew <laughs> up with as a kid this uh was actually given to me by one of my grandfather's friends before his untimely passing when oh, i was I'm sorry to a, hear that yeah it was a long time ago but he was a great cat and he um he gave me this knife when i, I had to be like six years old or so uh through poor judgment or maybe somebody lifted it i don't know at some point the knife left my possession permanently and it wasn't until i moved up here and i was chatting with reed over at north star trading post that i saw this in his case and we were talking about old knives and i got it i'm gonna do a quick side note on this um look reed that's a sharpshooter leather sister sheath systems and he does mm-hmm. kydex and all that stuff too leather and kydex and he's got a little retail location with some really funky knives in it just a really cool collection that he sells and trades and everything but uh i we were talking old knives. We were talking knife experiences. He happened to have one of these, and uh, I, he sold it to me for a quarter. And uh, <laughs> I tell you what, wow. I, and I'm well. not saying it's a $400 knife, but I mean it, it could fetch more than a quarter on the open market. So it was really a gift. And um, th- he expressly told me when this happened. This is, I think, even before we were doing the podcast. Uh, but he expressly told me when he's like, "This is what knives are all about." Mm. He's like. It's about bringing people together. It's about telling stories that are kind of bittersweet in this case and sharing that experience and being able to replace something that was 
really irreplaceable in my mind. And it's something that I missed every day of my life. It's something that was uh, uh, sentimentally valuable to me. Wow. And huh. so there was this whole experience, this whole interaction. And, and he was really dead set. Reed uh, was really dead set on that. This is what this interaction should be about with knives. It's not hmm. all about commandos killing bad guys. And it's not all about, um, uh, genitalia measuring contest. See, <laughs> see, you guys, I hope you appreciate that. Uh, and, and so uh-huh. it's, uh, it really just should be, uh, an accounting of events and a sharing of stories, a little bit of rack and touring. And that can be based around the tools that are in your hand while you're living these experiences. Correct. And that tool is the knife, man. man so that's cool. There's a short story long on a very old Swiss army knife. Next. Uh, <laughs> this, I mean, I love yeah. this. I, I just posted a post up on Facebook a little while ago about this. This is the Boker Plus Burnley Quaken, but this is the tuxedo version. The uh, I think it was a Blade HQ exclusive. The really with the, nice version. Oh, the titanium the, the bolsters, bolsters and the carbon, carbon fiber. fiber. Huh. Check that out, Jim. Oh my God. IKBS uh, bearings oh, on the pivot system. It is unbelievably smooth. I mean, open, close, fast or slow, it just sails open, and it's so quiet. And he makes that little click sound. It's buttery and precise, and no wasted space oh. in that build. No, not at all. I mean, like I'm just checking for wobble or anything. None. No, nothing. None. Nothing. There's no play. There's no. There's no play when it's half open. It's 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 cranked down. There's got to be like at least. I don't know, three thousandths difference between the the, the the widest part of the spine and the, and the and the lock face. Oh my goodness, it's out of control. And I mean, quite honestly, let's mm-hmm. let's go back in time uh, five years. All right, okay. so let's go back five years and let's buff the logo off of that. Okay, and forget that it is a Boker, which is a respectable brand, right? Sure. If somebody just brought this and said, "Hey, here's a custom I made," my jaw would hit. The floor. Like, I mean, I'd be like, unbelievable. <laughs> you, because you it, made this? It has that feeling. It has a true custom feel and performance. And I just think it's a great knife. And they're not expensive. I think I think you can fetch like 150 bucks for them that's, or something like that. That's not bad. I think I'm going to go try to find one today. Yeah. And Holy the crap. tuxedos are a little bit tricky to track down because they were that exclusive and they right. were in relatively limited numbers. You know, I'm not going to say it was one of 50, but I mean, yep. This is number 515. So at least so, that many. So it's probably a and couple I probably, thousand of them. I probably didn't get the last one. Yeah. So right. <laughs> pretty hot. And then I've got a, uh, one of our grunts. I got a little fixie on me. This is the, the first production version, which looks brilliant by the way. I'm a fan of light thin blades that just disappear on your belt but as soon as you pick it up it's a knife you can use for nearly everything and i'm a fan of that the grunt fits the bill and i'm not just like doing that just because you know i'm kissing your ass uh, kissing your butt <laughs> or anything no oh, thanks <laughs> but it's genuinely it's genuinely a really nice knife thanks yeah we're excited about it it's just mm-hmm. a lot of fun going through this production building it's kind of a new thing for us it's, but, uh... it's cool it's really good Oh, as we move forward, Jim, I got a question for you. What's that? When you're not listening to Behind the Blade podcast, where do you get your news from the cutlery industry? Ha, huh, Matt. Well, hey, let me tell you, son. <laughs> I, I, I can't do this with a serious face. It's knifenews.com. If you guys haven't already been to knifenews.com, you owe it yourselves to get over there right now. www.knifenews.com. Today's news for knife people. That is the absolute truth. And to be quite honest, most of our stories we source from Knife, Knife News, and uh, we recently linked up with them, and they are a supporter of the podcast, Behind the Blade, and we are a supporter of them. So please show your support, show your solidarity with us, engage them on Facebook, hit them up on Instagram, visit their website, and you'll be able to see all the stories that we didn't have time to cover in the news segment on BTV. Word.
All right, and we're back. Speaking of knife news, let's go right into it. Microtech settles its lawsuit with blogger Anthony Scullenbrini. You guys remember that story we covered, I think, two episodes ago about, uh, I think, uh, I don't know, it was Anthony Marfioni and Anthony Scullenbrini. Yep, and, and, Kai, and Kai was in there, too. Yeah, yeah. Kai USA Limited. Yeah, so so um, Anthony Scullenbrini, for a while ago, actually wrote a pretty inflammatory article comparing a Microtech knife to a very popular ZT model. Well, I'll leave it up to you guys when you guys check it out yourselves to find out which specific models they were, but they are strikingly similar, and Anthony Scolombrini's article was really inflammatory yeah. <laughs> to the point where Matt and I were, like, looking at each other, like, should we be mad? Should we be offended? What? This was the worst of two evils. This was, <laughs> this is uh, one company doing one thing, and their rebuttal was, uh, I, you guys have got to check it out. So listen to, I think it was episode five that we covered that. Yes, that See, was the that was the one with the Todd Bag interview. Yes, it yes, was. It was yeah. the one with Todd Bag interview. So guys, so, check out episode, episode five. five to get the full scoop on it, or you can visit Knife News at knifenews dot com and be able to check. So what is the scoop though? I guess we can cover some of it. So I guess they just dropped it. Um, um, Skull and Brini, I guess, uh, through through the settlement, has agreed to perform seven hundred hours of service for the knife community over four years. The majority of which will be donated by Microtech to the American Knife and Tool Institute, or AKTI. Microtech General Counsel Daniel Lawson tells us Scullenbrini will be utilizing his background as a public defender to help AKTI. I know Dan. I know know Dan personally. Do you know him? Oh, good guy. Dan Lawson? He's an amazing guy. I mean, this is the guy. ATKI is a great organization, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, they're going to be kind of comparable to knife rights. They push a lot of the same agendas and try to keep knife enthusiasts, knife users, knife customers, safe and protected from the law. So ATKI, I'll jump right in. And I know this is kind of muddled between Microtech, but that doesn't mean every player in on the board right now is being disrespectful. Gotcha. Dan's a great guy. Gotcha. And great. so I think, I think the world of him, he's always kept me up to speed. He also carries a vehement knife and he hooked us up with a couple Microtechs <laughs> a while ago, long before the podcast, long before we even moved here. But yeah, he's, he's just a great guy. Nice. Very cool. So there's all, there's other documents that Scullenbrini has agreed to hand over to Microtech related to his communications with Thomas Welk, the director of sales and marketing at Kai USA. Microtech says that these communications are helpful in their ongoing lawsuit against Kai, which apparently is still ongoing. They just dropped the portion about Anthony Scullenbrini. About Scullenbrini, okay. And, uh, and the company's social media manager, Kyle Bayer, is still going strong. Okay. So I guess as this develops, because this is this is some pretty interesting stuff. I don't know. So I guess as it develops, we will we'll stay on top of it. I think it's interesting to note that I mean, in you used to be able to, you can go to the bar and you can talk trash about whoever you want without typically being held legally liable right. for defamation or inflammatory or whatever it is, slander or anything like that. Yep. Um, but in today's world, I think we still have the casualness of talking to your buddies at the bar, except we have the ability to type on a blog and reach many people. Yeah. So let this be a cautionary tale. If you want to get out and talk smack, you may end up facing some consequences and i'm not defending either party or slamming either party and that's only because i I don't have an opinion yeah Yeah, i I fully understand what you're saying and also keep in mind that it has been ruled in the past there's legal precedence that says if you publish something it is a publication and then falls under anti-libel laws and and slander laws so i mean i mean it's absolutely something that you need to consider whenever you're posting anything on facebook a facebook post could be considered a a publication and you know what i'm all for that and i'm not for restrictive speech or censorship or Mm -hmm. i'm totally against that but what i am for is i would love to see the internet community become a little bit more polite 
and a little bit more cordial. And I feel like the only way to do that is fear of repercussions. Well, I mean, in real life, that's what it would be. Matt, if I were to walk up to you and say, I think your knives are garbage. Yeah. And, well, and then, then you would... punch me in the face. <laughs> that's definitely give that's... you a piece of my mind. Right, yeah. right. That's the, that's the repercussion. On the internet, there isn't such a thing like that. So you have you have a lot more stuff like that happening because they f- there's no actual physical harm or fear. Right. But if there's a little bit of legal precedence there, then maybe you can you know bring something back to that. Or, or, you know, free speech. Yeah. Or however you do it. Just be polite, guys. Just be polite. Just be be nice. I'm not asking too much. (laughs) So, item number two, and I have mixed feelings about this. Benchmade releases its first slip joint. Ooh. And it's called the 319 Proper. And it's a it's it's an interesting little knife. Um, it's got almost like a Loveless style kind of handle with a with a. Have you seen this thing? No, I'm gonna walk around and see. Okay. All right, come come around here and check this out. So. So, so oh, it's yeah. got a, almost a loveless style handle with a, with a, with a Warncliffe with a Warncliffe blade, um, and this is Benchmade. This is this is this is interesting. It's like knife company releases knife. No, this is interesting because Benchmade's never done a slip joint before. Never. Which is surprising. I mean, mm-hmm. before they were Benchmade, they were Pacific Cutlery. Before they were Pacific Cutlery, they were Bali Song USA. Right. I mean, here's a company that's been around since I want to say like '83 or '84. Yeah, I think so. Is that when I they think so? Came yeah, to yeah. I think that's what I came to be. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but Benchmade, approximately as old as Jim Stewart. <laughs> and then just, just this picture of me with my thumbs up, Rosie the Riveter style. Yeah. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, it looks pretty interesting. I actually got to see this in person when I went to Germany for IWA 2017. What do you think about? I think it has some traveling to do about the world. I have no doubt yeah. that the execution is spot on. I would think Benchmade's a pretty reputable band brand when it comes mm-hmm. to fit, finish, and execution. I personally I don't like the design. It, it doesn't. But you know what? Mm-hmm. I'm a tough cookie when it comes to slip joints. Yeah. And yeah, I, yeah. I'm really well, picky. you're just not a slip joint guy. There's that. I mean, yeah. Right? <laughs> on top of that, on top of that I, I'm a slip joint guy. So I'm I've made and I and I and I collect and I own several slip joints that are super smooth. Um, this was almost too hard to open. It was kind of grindy, almost like they forgot to deburr the parts mm. when they put it in. But I do want to emphasize that I'm not slamming the knife. I think it's an awesome move for them to expand their line and get into more slip joints because that definitely needs to happen. Slip joints are awesome. Even if they're bad, they're awesome. And th- I'm not saying it's bad. Again, I'm not yeah. saying it's bad because it's not. Yeah, quit qualifying. It's our show. Okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but but um, I think it needs uh, a little bit... I think whoever is designing this and the production process needs to go out and buy a... Sodbuster just needs some refining, or, they, yeah. or they they just they just need a little bit more experience in what makes a good slip joint, and then you talk to some slip joint guys, and I know that they can handle this because I know that Benjamin makes smooth opening knives. Right, I know that they do. Absolutely. So so this is just like a this is just like a perception and quality of what they have. Now once they take that and apply it to this, I think it'll be just fine. I think it'll sell very well. I think it's going to sell think, very well, anyways. You, yeah. It's an introductory model. It's a collectible brand. I think it's got a lot going for it. So I don't think they're going to lose any money on it. But I do think they will see a an improvement if they dial in the style and according to what you saw at Iwa, yeah. uh, some execution. V- version two point I know will be ten times yep. will be ten times better, and I'll probably completely amend this. But of course, don't make don't take my word for it. You guys should absolutely check it out by buying one of your own. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. All right. Next, what do we got? I think. That that's it. That's everything that we have for there this we go. segment. If so, you guys are looking for more knife news, then go to the place we call Knife News. 
KnifeNews.com. Also, today's news for knife people. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be back in just a second with, uh, what are we doing next, Jim? History? We're doing history. You're doing history. See you guys in a couple minutes for our history segment. What's happening, gang? Matt Martin here. Uh, Jim and I are sitting recording this evening's podcast, and we wanted to take a minute to, number one, thank you for listening and all your support that you've been giving us. We really appreciate it. And we also want to explain to you that we do this as a labor of love, and we feel like it's important. We love the knife industry so much that we give a lot of our time to this. Um, we hope that you guys are enjoying the podcast, and we'd also like to let you know that in order to make it as enjoyable of an experience as possible, we sometimes have to undergo hardware and even software updates, uh, get some new equipment, make sure that we get the soundproofing and microphones and editing software and computer programs and the marketing. It goes on and on and on. Well, if you feel like that we're contributing something and you would like to give a little bit back, then please visit BehindTheBladePodcast.com and click that donate button. We've got a PayPal account set up and it all goes right back into the podcast so we, we can bring you the best knife information history and answer your questions and use the best equipment possible to do it to make it enjoyable for everybody involved thank you so much and enjoy the show and we're back welcome back so, as i slink my way over from the computer in front of the microphone very stealthy. It's like, no one can hear me all right, so ruffle some papers in the <laughs> microphone because that's professional. I'm looking forward to this a lot. I think this is one of the coolest subjects in the world. This went off the rails. Okay, so I'll be completely honest with you guys. I was like, hey, let's do a kukri history bit, kind of break it up a little bit, and let's go into the history of a pattern of a knife. And so I'm thinking, all right, we're going to go to the Nepalese, and we're going to you know, kind of start the Gurkhas and work back. We were in Mike's office, and we're chatting, and – he opened the floodgates on me, and then I spent the next number of hours trying to research everything to make sure I sounded like I knew what I was talking about. So we started mm -hmm. with a kukri bit. Yeah. Where yeah. we ended up, just sit down and buckle up. <laughs> sit down, gum shoes, and we take a trip back through time. <laughs> what we know is a traditional kukri pattern actually dates back to roughly about 600 B.C., that's about the tail end of the Bronze Age, depending on which region you were in. Um, and here's the thing, though. It's not the kukri. Back then, it was the copus. And you guys are familiar with, with mm. copus, right? You got oh, yeah. Copuses. Um, copi, if you will. Copi? <laughs> copi? Yeah, I'm not sure how to pluralize <laughs> it, but uh, you, I guess you don't dual wield them. Maybe you could. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you could. I mean, Kimbo cop copuses would be fun. Now, as a whole, the copus was widely used from about 600 BC to 400 AD, which is a pretty good run. That's, that's a long time. I mean, I'm, that's... I'm trying to think of what uh, the Rambo knife. <laughs> I think it lasted about 15 years. Yeah. This is pushing a thousand. So, <laughs> which one do you think has more impact on history? <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry, Sly. Uh, yeah, yeah. No offense to Jimmy Lyle or anybody else that uh -huh. was involved in that, even Gil. Um, but now let's fast forward a couple hundred years to Alexander the Great and his battling conquest as he moved through Persia, just conquering. Uh, with Copuses in the hands of his men, Alexander was on the hunt for the Persian king Darius the Third specifically. Now Darius, very creative. Very cowardly, 
met a miserable demise, by the way. I think he got killed by his own guys for being such a coward. He was I Oh mean, yeah, turned turned tail and fled, right? And, multiple then, and then they times. went. So Whoa. Yeah, in the research, oh. <laughs> this was, from what I was able to find, I think he did it famously. Which means he did it, you know, on the sly probably dozens of times. But uh-huh. I think he did it famously three, four times. Oh, man. Like high-profile retreats. Ma- they, oh. What did they say? There was this awesome quote. I wish I would have wrote it down. He led the race to safety. <laughs> <laughs> oh, And was eventually killed for cowardice. Yeah. And so Alexander had it out for this guy. Well-deserved. Uh, Darius is also the one... Not Xerxes from the movie 300. <laughs> it was Darius that employed the battle elephants. And Oh, man. I mean, so if you guys just paint a picture, and the numbers are kind of lost to history. I saw figures up to in the hundreds of thousands and then figures down to the 25,000s. And actually, it's a point of contention between historians okay. as to how many people were involved in these battles. And I also, in my mm-hmm. amazing note-taking ability, forgot to write down the specific name of the battle that I'm talking about right now, and I cannot pronounce it based on memory. There were a lot of G's and a lot of L's and a couple of T's, and that was all I'm going to get into for that. Anyways, it was... <laughs> okay, continue. Yeah, this massive battle. Uh, he did employ the battle elephants. They were Asian elephants, uh, so little ear elephants, but they were still huge. And, I mean, you can delve into that. That is a subject in and of itself. Obviously, the Macedonians, one of their most famed formations you know fighting formations was the phalanx jim you're oh, familiar yeah. with the phalanx, oh yeah, right? yeah phalanxes are awesome it's, i mean I, like to this day you could use that fa- you could use the phalanx oh to- that's what I they mean, do in so riot good. control they do it in riot control oh, riot oh right cops, right exactly out. so for you guys who aren't spun up on the phalanx and that's spelt with a ph and a y and an x and so <laughs> and other letters that form the word but we're gonna figure we're, those ones out this <laughs> is in english though these are knives um so <laughs> it, just imagine a brick of troops standing shoulder to shoulder dress right dress in columns very close proximity with shields on the outside so they basically moved like uh imagine mixing a millipede with a tank sure you know what i mean yeah. so just a bunch of feet walking next to each other and they moved as a block well they thought that the elephants would be enough to break through their line and disrupt mm-hmm. the phalanx mm-hmm. well the macedonians the romans in their phalanx uh-huh are all bristling with spears. Right. So, and so I <laughs> yes. mean, it's just this walking mace brick. Towards, and the elephants are like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> it's like, no, no, screw No matter this. what the Persian on the back is telling them to do. You're right. So it was a miserable failure as far as that goes. On an interesting note, in the, uh, the top, again, just so you guys can get the scene. I mean, this is like a fog of war moment. I mean, this is real face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat. Copus is in hands oh. as it's conquering, as Alexander and his troops nice. are conquering their way through Persia. And the elephants on their headgear had a small opening. And it was just, a, I, I couldn't give you an exact measurement, but let's just for visual sake picture like a four inch diameter, maybe an eight inch diameter circular opening on the very top of the battle helmet of the elephant. Okay. And what that was, was like an emergency break. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> hey, to just brain the elephant. That's exactly they right. To get down. That's exactly so. Awesome. If the elephant were to turn on the Persian army, they needed a way to put this thing out, uh, you know, out of commission right. before it attacked their own Ooh. troops because it's an animal, right? Sure. So they had a huge hammer and a spike that they would drive into the skull <laughs> of the elephant once it went rogue. Oh and so, my God. And you're like, well, I mean, okay, that's forethought. I'm impressed sure. by that. Yeah. The elephant was nonplussed by the advent of the phalanx. Uh, so. 
Anyways, let's get back on track. We're talking about, I mean, these are just some interesting facts that were told to me and some interesting facts that I found in my Mm -hmm. research before the show, and I thought it was absolutely worth sharing. And so after moving through Persia into what is modern-day India, and this is around 300 BC, I want to say the battle against Darius III, the, the big one, I want to say it was like 335 or 333, kind of in the... Circa 300 earlys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And, of course, when you're in BC, this confused me so much because I'm a dunce, is that the numbers get smaller as you get to zero. (laughs) So I'm like, so that was longer ago. And you're like, no, wait a minute, backwards. So, yeah. So uh, around 300 BC, after they made their way through Persia, they made it to what we consider today uh, northern India. And so Alexander and his Hellenic League introduced the Copus to what we also consider the Nepalese now. I don't know what right. they were at to that point. To conscript them into the army, right? Something easy for them to use. Now, right? it gets a little yep. murky as far as that goes, but you touch on an interesting point. So okay. we'll come back to the Nepalese, but as Jim pointed out, the conscripts, and especially the frontline light skirmishers, were all press soldiers. I mean, these are you okay. know, you, these are not a volunteer military as we know it today. This is oh, like right. the uh, the selective service, the draft in full force. Right. right. We need to fight <laughs> to survive kind of thing, right? And so uh, the conscripts, though, were, you know, a week ago they were farmers. A week ago, oh, sure. you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. they were shopkeeps. And now all of a sudden they're fighting the Persian army. Yeah. We need to hook them up. And I'm saying we as if I'm Alexander the Great. So right. just bear with me. Uh, you can call me Alexander the Great, not Alex or anything. It has to be the whole name. Uh, <laughs> um, so they, what they needed is they needed a weapon that was battle proven to be effective with minimal training. Truth be told. Oh, yeah. You know what? It makes perfect sense because of the shape of the, and the design of the copus. You hit harder just by the swinging because it's because of the recurve. And because of that, that massive recurve and that forward lobe, you're actually mm-hmm. able to reach up and over the shields of your sure. opponent. So it yeah, gives yeah, yeah. you an advantage. This was proven in gladiator times now you nice. didn't come into being a gladiator i mean i guess some were trained some were slaves sure you know what i mean so the people who survived with the weapon the most frequently mm-hmm. with the least amount of training initially right boom, there's the copus perfect so just battle proven uh perfect to get new people into into combat with and and then and then exactly yeah, yeah yeah stack the deck in their favor right. i mean it's like it's like uh sending a weak guy to the bar with brass knuckles you know sure, what i mean it sure, doesn't make yeah. him a, an amazing fighter but it'll definitely give him but if an he advantage, gets a good hit in right yeah it'll count right uh, uh there was an amazing quote uh oh my god this was to julius caesar as he was walking by a rank and file let me try to get this right uh and anybody who knows this quote, feel free to correct me if I'm way off base. Info at BehindTheBladePodcast.com. You got that right. Uh, <laughs> so as Caesar was walking down uh, through the ranks, he actually passed by a centurion. And he walked past, and the centurion kind of slyly cleared his throat to get the attention of Caesar. Mm-hmm. And kind of a... <clears throat> Caesar stopped and looked at him. And the centurion looked at Caesar and said... I used to look different before the copus split my helmet or cut through my helmet. <laughs> and, and then Caesar recognized him as the centurion and then gave him a uh-huh. hug, you know, whatever it was. And they greeted him formally and properly. Right. Nice. But I mean, talk, that's a hard dude right there. So he took Ugh. the copus to the face through his helmet oh. just to tell you the effectiveness of that blade. Oh. And it disfigured his face to the point where Caesar didn't recognize him. And he that's drew nuts. attention to it. And I'm just, what a, I mean, that's a historical statement you know yeah, what i mean that's absolutely crazy oh, um so 
So going back to, I don't know if the Nepalese ever even got to hold a copus during this campaign, mm-hmm. but they definitely saw it. Maybe they picked one up from the battlefield. I don't think they were directly engaged with Alexander and the Hellenic League. You know what I no, mean? No, but but the, the, there was definitely an exposure at some points because yes. because the other what we're going to talk about in a minute didn't start surfacing until after this event. Yes. Period. Absolutely. So, so at that point though. We cannot deny them for leaving an indelible mark on the cutlery world by that influence of the Copus <laughs> as dropped by a member of the Hellenic League followed by led by Alexander the Great. You right. know what I mean? So yeah. just there's the, the lineage as far as that goes. And these are the ancestors of the Gurkhas. While they were figuring out what to do with the design, the Copus was again cutting its way through the pages of history. <laughs> you almost had a Doppler effect with that. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Between <laughs> Copus and Kukri, there was a third moniker, the Falcata. Oh, yeah, the Falcata. Yeah, nice. which, which is the Spanish okay. term for the blade. And that was coined by the expert bladesmiths, the Iberians, who made the Copus. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. it's, so, it's coming full circle. It's pretty sweet. And the Iberians were horsemen, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, accomplished horsemen. And they liked the Copus in its length and shape because they were actually able to use it while mounted. Oh, sure. And so, yeah. yeah, so the Iberians made them, and I don't know if they developed them originally. I'm not 100% sure on, like, the first one where it came out. Some weapon designer came up with it, and mm. then it gained fame, and then the Iberians either improved it or just made them for <clears throat> the most part. Or just adopted it. Yeah. yeah. One of the two things. So, now we get to jump forward even more to roughly 167 B.C., and Judah Maccabee was the leader of the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucid Empire. And so if we have any Jewish listeners, I'm half Jewish myself, you might know this anecdote as it leads to the story of Hanukkah. So the Maccabean revolt oh, is what wow. leads up to the Hanukkah story. Kukri's in everything. Yeah, so think about that. So now all of a sudden we're like, oh, we went back to Macedonia, and now we are talking about the one of the largest Jewish holidays on the calendar. I mean, this is crazy. Um, so it, And this excerpt is, I'm not going to lie, this part right here is going to be copy and pasted directly from Wikipedia on the Maccabean revolt and specifically Judah Maccabee. So mindful of the superiority of the Seleucid forces during earlier battles, Judah's strategy was to avoid any engagement with their regular army and to resort to guerrilla warfare in order to give them a feeling of insecurity. The strategy Hmm. enabled Judah to win a string of victories at the Battle of Nahal el Haramaya. He defeated a small Seleucid force under the command of Apollonius, governor of Samaria, who was killed. Okay, you're like, why'd you just tell me all that, right? Judah took possession of Apollonius's Falcutta and used it until his death as a symbol of vengeance. So huh. after striking down the uh, Seleucid Apollonia, <laughs> right. Apollonius, Apollonius. Yeah, yeah, Apollonius, he took his Falcutta, his copus, <laughs> his kukri, uh-huh. and he, it was adorned, <coughs> heavily decorated and stuff, and he carried it. That's awesome. It was returned. Oh, mm-hmm. I, I don't think uh, Maccabee, Judah Maccabee is the one that actually dropped Apollonius, I think it was one of his men, and they right. brought it back as a trophy, right? Sure. And then yeah. and Maccabee carried this mm-hmm. this this Falcutta, which is amazing. Well, eventually the Romans caught up with Maccabee, and he and his men were defeated. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was it wasn't good, and so Not the, for them. Judah ended up dying, and the Romans took the the, the Falcutta back. Right. Yeah. No, so now they it's reclaimed back. it. Yeah. Right. Right. So, right. Pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was so. There you go, guys. Now I wanted to really 
cover the kukri but as i went deeper and deeper in this and i mean these are battles of mythical proportions i was like now here's a history lesson right right and i mean it spans a a, per, a couple hundred years a few hundred years and we haven't even really talked about the kukri at all other no. than its origins this is just this is just the origin story yeah. this is issue number zero yeah is what this is, <laughs> I mean, isn't that amazing? yeah no. it's pretty cool it's yeah. still a good story just right on top of it yeah so i so there you go guys there is this week's history lesson in a nutshell we just covered <laughs> uh about 600 years we didn't make it to the end of the copus or the whatever uh the copus or the falcon or the kukri but we covered about 600 year span uh to bring you the history on that so i hope you guys enjoyed it and we'll be back in a second We are back from that short break. I love that. I love that segment. I really do. It really sticks with me. I mean, uh, the, the the kukris are really, really important I've, throughout history. And uh, so, for item number two, though, three, 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 three segment. I, we have another interview lined up for you guys, but this time it's our second on location interview <laughs> with Matt Martin. Woo, moving up, <laughs> talking about custom production knives. Matt, can you lead us through start to finish? on what goes into the mentality behind a good custom knife. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. Uh, and what I'm about to tell you guys, I'm sorry, this is such bad radio. I'm wearing a creaky leather jacket, and I'm starting to get hot, so I'm going to take it off on it. <laughs> it adds personality. Get We're ready? Good. Uh, so what I'm... I'm going to struggle with my watch. This is a mess. And so there we go. <laughs> All right. We're back. We're, so we're in. What, what I'm about to explain to you guys as far as what goes into a custom knife is... Um, is is fairly universal now there are going to be some things that makers do that are unique to other ones uh as we like to call it and i'm comfortable saying this on the air this is not a segment about unicorn piss this is not mysticism this is not voodoo this is not uh, getting the stars to align in order to make a perfect knife out of a meteor this is what it takes to make a real usable custom made knife so let's just jump right yeah, into dude. it and uh, I look, most custom knives, if not all under that moniker, are not going to be water jet typically. And some guys do. And that's fine. I, I hold mm -hmm. no ill will or anything towards them. I, I wish I water jetted more. But we're going to go from a bar of steel to a finished knife. And I hope that knife customers get to hear this and kind of understand and appreciate the work that goes into them. And like I said, this isn't me. This is fairly universal for right. all makers. Right. So any of the any of the <clears throat> knives that you're waiting for that you have in your hand, you get to kind of peek behind the curtain and see what goes into them. No trade secrets, so don't don't think that far into it. But um, <laughs> a lot of this a lot of this is pretty universal, though. It is. It is. I mean, I mean, so so it wouldn't be much of a trade secret anyway to say that we no. start with a bar of steel. So we start. So, yeah, exactly. We start. So here's a here's a big tip. We start with a bar of steel. What? <laughs> um, we actually start much like you guys do in the production world. We start with a sketch and a concept. We start with an idea, and then we make the idea a picture. And then from that picture, we determine what size of steel to select, and that's going to be length, thickness, and width. Uh, once we have our steel selected, of course, the material has to be selected based on the job. 
Absolutely. Um, proper application, proper materials for application of the of the of the item. Yes, and there is a myriad of ways which I won't go into because there's so many different styles and so many different methods. If any makers there in the trench crew want to hit us up and ask us how we do it personally, I'd be glad to share that with you. Or if enough people ask, we'd be glad to share it publicly. But uh, somehow you have to take that conceptual drawing or that dimensional drawing at this point because it goes from a sketch to a dimensional drawing, and then it goes from a dimensional drawing directly to the steel. And once it's uh, applied to the steel, whether it's traced on or an image is glued or whatever it is, then it goes, you know, we take it to the wheel. We found that the wheel is faster and I hate it less than the bandsaw. So I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll take it to a very coarse grit on a, you know, a large diameter rubber backed rubber surface grinding yeah, wheel. Yeah, just a, just a basic just a basic smooth surface or it could even be a rough surface too could depending be, yeah. on depending on what you're doing with it. Yep, so take a coarse <clears throat> belt to a contact wheel. Contact I, wheel. I am one who uses a tool rest when I'm when I'm profiling uh, because I like to keep all my lines pretty perpendicular and I feel like there's a lot of wasted energy. I know it's getting kind of technical, but there's a lot of wasted energy in trying to hold a bar of steel against the contact wheel because the the belt as it's moving towards you pulls your hand away from the wheel. And so I find that mm -hmm. using a tool rest I'm able to put that energy directly into cutting of the material. Sure. No, so, I understand that. So um, it's a little bit different than when I do it. I actually use just the wheel, um, not not for precision, but like with like um, I'll I'll do it the same way as you do. As I'll, as I'll scribe everything out and mm -hmm. I'll make it perfect. But I'll actually just use my hands to grind everything out to a rough shape, and then I'll use a tool rest on a platen. Right to so square everything. Up. To square everything up. That's exactly what I do. Okay, so uh, the initial step notwithstanding, the second step is exactly the same. So we're going to square up on a plat until we have a nice true pattern. And once I have that pattern down and everything looks good, the edges are smooth, everything is right to the line, and I have basically, if you were to hold it up to a white wall and silhouette it, you would have the shape of a knife in your hand. Right, right, and nice. So there you go, you know, right? And so... Mm -hmm. And then after that, and sometimes depending on the complexity of the model, but either way, in these couple of steps is I punch my holes. And I punch holes, A, to lighten the blade, B, to suspend the blade in the vacuum heat treat furnace, and C, for my fasteners and lanyard tube on the scales. Right, right. And so I try not to do too many different sizes and all that stuff, but uh, you know, I, I'll punch some holes in there to attach the handles and to be able to hang it and heat treat. Um, once that's done we move on to probably one of the worst operations in custom knife making, and that is surface grinding. For, <laughs> for those of you that do not have a uh, either an automatic, hydraulically driven, electric, whatever it is, uh, surface grinder, a power surface grinder, most of us just use uh, some sort of flat surface, flat plate yep. and setup. You know, yep. I use a four by 36. That's, know? that's, that's how I used to do it too. Um, I actually used to, used to use a magnet on a two by 72 on a platen with no go. tool rest yes. <laughs> to try to try to flatten it out as best I possibly could. And then if, and then if I was within 10, 15 thousandths, corner to corner, front to back, I was pretty satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, that was before I discovered the magic of a good surface grinder. Right. For sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but in that, you know, just so you guys know, so as the material is received from the mill, it's got a, a pretty healthy mill skin on it, and I am of the belief that it needs to be removed to be visually appealing. Some people do and some people don't, and that is what it is. But for me, it's important to surface grind the material before we start beveling it. Totally, totally. Get everything flat and true. Right. And for me, it's important. There's a little bit of technical data for my makers out there. It's easier on me, on the belts, and on the machine to do this after my knife is profiled and drilled. Oh, yeah, totally. I'm grinding uh, less material. <clears throat> yeah. So doing it to mm -hmm. just the bar mm -hmm. is more work unnecessarily because you're removing that mill skin from 
parts that you're not going to use. Right. Right. So right. it's a waste of time. Um, so yeah, so we'll surface grind. After we surface grind, I do some bevel layouts. I like to scribe a center line. I like to scribe on my grind height and everything just to make sure that I get as close to perfect symmetry as I possibly can by hand. Mm -hmm. Uh, and on, mm -hmm. on the blade. Yeah, this is a new skill that Matt actually taught me, by the way. I started doing that, and my grind started looking way better. <laughs> if, if you have a goal, it makes it easy to reach. <laughs> totally, right? totally. Yeah, So grind to the line, guys. And, uh, and then by hand, uh, some people use tool rests, some people use jigs. Everybody uses something a little bit different or a method a little bit different. But in my shop, we completely freehand grind because I found it to be the easiest for me. So whether that's hollow, whether it's convex, whether that's uh, uh, flat... Whatever grind I'm doing, I do them purely freehand, no tool rest, no nothing, because I find it to be easier that way, and I mm -hmm. can get a better product with my body mechanics that method. But I, I'm I'm kind of the same way. I, I pretty much do nearly nearly everything that I do is all convex, and I'm when I'm on the slack of that belt, it's uh, it's just you tell me what you want. It. Yeah, uh, you couldn't fix that anyway. So you know what I mean? Oh yeah, I'm no, sorry. no, not at all. And that's just how I've learned how to grind. Right. So, so there you, you know. go. And so I freehand grind, you know, I go through a progression of belts uh, to be able to achieve the finish I want. I think the most important thing, and this is me giving, uh, I don't know if it's advice, but giving my opinion on the matter, is that no matter what you do, I know it's pretty hot right now to do like 36 grit finishes and, you know, all this other stuff. I don't really care what you finish at. Just make it look intentional and make it look deliberate. Yeah. Because if you cheat it and say, hey, cheating is in right now, it's it's going to look like rubbish. And so whatever you want to finish on, as long as you make it look intentional and deliberate, then I think you're going to have a Stone Cold winner that will appeal to at least a part of the market. Not everybody, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Well, well, not not one not one knife appeals to everybody in the market no. anyway. No, no, I no. mean, you're always going to have people who like it and not like it either. So, right. but, but you most likely, if you, if you follow Matt's advice and you find that you can make something look intentional with a certain finish, somebody is likely to love it and buy it. Yep. Then, I mean, I mean, but and if it's not uneven, it tends to be called a uh, prison shiv. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you end <laughs> so, up, you end up with a, you know, a, a backyard looking knife. And I don't care if you make knives in your backyard. I used to make knives in my backyard, uh, but don't make it look like a backyard knife. Make people surprised by the uh, crudeness of your shop. You know what I mean? If I right. can give any advice, make people be like, I can't believe you make this here. You know, what I mean? If you can <laughs> I, <laughs> put that impression in somebody's head, then I think you're doing your job right. But this isn't me telling you how to make knives. This is telling you how knives are made. So we'll get back to it. So what we have now is we have a relatively flat piece of material that is in the shape of a knife and it has been beveled. So and this is. I, it's hard to put a time down to this. If I put a time down to it, I'd be so disappointed with what I have to charge for the knives. I tell you what. So, like, <laughs> so I just do it for fun or not for fun. And this is how I make my living. But I, I love what I do. So I try not to put a premium on the time that is spent. But there is a significant amount of time even just leading up to this point. Because you have to figure to get the blade to length. It has to be measured. It has to be chopped. And then all of a sudden you're doing your layout. And then where's my scribe? And you're going through the whole thing. And uh, <laughs> Spend an hour. Do, you, do I charge the hour where I was looking for my scribe? that I lost or not. I don't right. know. <laughs> so the bevels are scribed in. The bevels are freehand ground. And you are you should be getting close to your finished edge thickness, whatever it is that you prefer that to be. Uh, at, this is a good point to move on to the guard process. And in the guard process, you blank out a piece of material. Select it, whether it's, you know, for, in my shop, I use brass and nickel silver almost exclusively. A couple things out of stainless here and there. But you select your guard material. You're going to cut it out. You're going to measure it with some sort of accurate measuring device. And you're going to figure out the length and width 
of your uh, guard slot, of your tank. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. how, however it goes on, whatever method it is, whether it's hidden tang or full tang or from the front. Or from the back. Yeah, it or from the back. Yeah. It doesn't matter. So you have to figure out how to make that piece of brass, we're going to use that in this instance, fit onto that knife and fit well. Right, fit well. That's, that, that's a, yeah. Now there's the time killer. <laughs> and so in our shop we have, a, I think it's a 1994 Smithy Mill. And I want to say it'll hold about twenty thousand. <laughs> so, That's like a school bus, right? And so it's yeah. it's pretty shot out, yeah. but it works for me because I only get the guard slot with the end mill close, and the rest is done with file work to get a pretty true mating surface. Um, once that's done, I like to pin the guards in place by drilling a hole through the guard and the knife at the same time. So I take it mm-hmm. back to the mill and set it up, and right. I punch you know one or two holes through there depending on what the knife calls for, and um, at that point, you know, you go through and you hand countersink all the holes to make sure that there's strength and you make sure that there's radius is filed at every corner and stuff like that mm-hmm. to make sure that there's strength after heat treat and that you have no deep scratches that are going to laterally apply stress risers to the blade. Right. Right. Yep. Um, it's also, in my experience, easier to finish the blade before heat treat than after heat treat. And that is because the steel is in a non-hardened state and therefore its wear resistance is greatly reduced. So <laughs> I will, it's I, easy to work with. Yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> I will hand rub uh, the blades if it calls for it at that stage. So before okay. I send it to heat treat. All right, about what finish? Well, no, never mind. I yeah. was going to say, well, about what finish you're going to bring it down to, but don't worry about it. It's not important. Just, yeah, yeah. just bring it down to something finer. You know, it's it's a good question, though, Jim. And mm-hmm. to be honest, I've seen some guys, um, Zach Plowman, uh, he does some pretty out there stuff, but I think his knives are pretty rad looking. Yeah. And I don't know him personally. I don't own any of his knives or anything like that. But when I look at him, I'm like, oh, that's a pretty sweet knife. And it gives good photos. You know what I mean? It looks sharp. It looks, looks cleanly ground. And, you know, he'll put on there. I've seen him put 220 grit finish. And so he may be using a mm-hmm. beat piece of 220 grit for his hand rub finish right and it it comes out looking clean and homogenous hmm. and so and some guys do a really crummy 600 grit finish <laughs> you know yeah, what i mean so absolutely i think it's up to the knife and up to the maker and up to their hand as to what is an acceptable finish for their model like we touched on before uh, it's absolutely true if you look at um andy roy and fiddleback forge their their knives look a little bit rougher but everything is homogenous right everything flows perfectly for that style of knife and it works really well even though it's a little bit of a rough finish even though it's got the brute to forge look or mill scale on it it all flows and it all still works looks intentional and deliberate yeah. right looks and, intentional yeah, and deliberate yeah, and absolutely so that's what matters so again yeah. it doesn't matter what grit you finish to as long as it looks like you did a good job at get, that grit I need to go get one of those <laughs> <laughs> I still don't have a fiddleback oh, forge really? I, need, I need to get one yeah, yeah they're, they're cool pretty sweet. um. And so it goes off to heat treat. Uh, you know, we do a vacuum furnace heat treat on most of our knives, and uh, it gets cooked, and it gets sent back to me. And then once I get it back, kind of inspect it, give it a once-over, make sure nothing haywire happened at the heat treat facility. And then it uh, comes time for assembly. So you go through, finish everything up. You get your guard ready. You know, you kind of pre-shape your guard a little bit and clean up the faces on that. You get it fit into place. And then where you had drilled those holes previously, you tap some pins through, and you have to – that's kind of the watchmaking of knife making. You know what I mean? It's sure, a little bit yeah. delicate work. And that honestly, I can say this without equivocation. I, that is my favorite part about making a knife. Is it really setting the guard? Is is tapping the Tap- pins specifically. <laughs> is peening those little pins uh-huh. over on the anvil on my vice, you know, and I just dome them over and swell them in so that uh-huh. there are no gaps even after the peened head has I, been ground away. I understand what you mean by watchmaking and how it applies here because that is a... And, and if you guys don't know exactly what we're talking about, what Matt's talking about is as he puts the pins through, he actually domes the tops of the pins to to, to encapture 
the the guard and make sure that there's no wobble or any movement right in there dry no glue or nothing just mechanical strength that's it just it's a mechanical awesome. bond and yeah. it has to be a mechanical bond that is done in a manner that once you grind off the because i don't countersink them right right so i'm i'm upsetting the pins basically yeah. that's a term used in foraging is upsetting and I'm upsetting the pins by swelling the ends of them in the method that I peen them. And it actually swells the material throughout the channel of yeah. the, that the pin rides in, that yeah. little hole. And so it fills it. And what that does is even after I grind off the domed pieces, there is no gap whatsoever yeah. in the pin. So there's no little crescent moon. It's been no. swollen all the way through. And to me, that's just the coolest thing ever. And uh, after that, not everybody does this. We do it in our shop. We solder. Um, mm -hmm. And between there is a lot of cleaning, a lot of scrubbing, a lot of deburring and making sure that everything fits right. Um, I don't want to minimize what it is that custom knife makers do as a whole, but for the sake of brevity, we're going to cut out all the parts that you guys pay for, but don't necessarily want to listen to. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, then it's on to soldering and you apply your flux, you apply your heat, you apply your solder. There's a little bit of an art form. Everybody does it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. uh, and boom, now all of a sudden you have this watertight seal, this liquid tight seal that doesn't allow any mud, blood or crud to get between the tang of the knife and the guard causing corrosion over the long term, especially in a right. thicker guard, like oh, quarter yeah. or five sixteenths or three eighths. <clears throat> and, I mean, uh, yeah, stuff can build up in, in between the tang and the guard, even though you don't see a gap. But yes, but just underneath the surface and stuff it, like blood, it can shit. start I rusting mean, out. And all stuff, of a sudden, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, 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 especially if it starts rusting, and I mean that can just creep right up the blade from underneath the guard. Yep, capillary <clears throat> action. Yeah. If it wicks the solder, it's gonna wick the nasties too, and it can cause you know blood's a really bad one, especially on hunting knives and stuff like that. So you get blood in there, and and you're all of a sudden you're rotting your blade from the inside, and you don't even realize it. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And so that's what the solder joint does. It really isn't as structurally pure as the pins are as far as keeping it there it's not it's a method of sealing the joint more than it is a method of attachment attachment yeah, right? attachment right yeah i would agree <clears throat> um <throat> and so and you know what don't let anybody fool you otherwise guys like and i have a very simple test if anybody wants to contest this then uh feel free to write me and i will give you a very simple test to prove this fact because there has been a point of contention some people said that the solder permeated the molecules of the parent Wh material what and it kind of wove that <clears throat> folks what i'm explaining right now is what we call unicorn piss yeah you say that because it's yeah. a it's a mystical harvestable intangible that uh, the people yeah. say well this is how no let's just use science let's just use facts yeah and if you and I have a test, but I'm not going to waste time on it right now. So, anyways, that is what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm still stuck on the whole on the on the whole mysticism thing. All of a sudden, for some reason, oh, science and God. physics doesn't work here. No, exactly. It's, it's, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's a tool, guys, <clears throat> um, and it should be a well-made tool and well-made for the right reasons. And so, once the solder joint is cleaned up, and I will tell you guys about this part because this part also sucks. <laughs> this is the guard joint cleanup. Now, depending on how things went, sometimes it's very easy. Sometimes it goes completely off the rails, and you have to clean and scrub and sand. When I say scrub, I mean scrub by hand with sandpaper oh. uh, or some other buffing media. Maybe it's a wheel, maybe it's a whatever it is. Uh, you have to clean up the face of that guard and bring it back to its original luster, all the while trying to keep it nice and flat and not totally grooved out and gnarly right, looking right. worn away. So you have to clean up the face of that guard, and then you go through and you re-clean the blade. Usually I do the flats, you know, because that's where the action is as far as solder sure. goes. Uh, you have to clean up the underside of the solder joint, otherwise you won't get a true mate between your scale material right, and, and the guard. guard. Yeah. Right. 
<clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so then you select your handle material, whatever that is, micarta, phenolics, uh, hopefully not acrylics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and you set that on there. You figure out a way to attach it, whether by pressure or adhesion or something like that. And you punch your holes. So you drill your holes through the scale and the tang at the same time to make sure that everything fits as it should. And then you select your fasteners and you select your adhesives. It should be some sort of epoxy. And uh, and you glue the whole mess together. And then comes the task of. Uh, and like I said, your, your material has already been bandsawed out. You know, you take that, you prepare for it. Your fasteners are selected and trimmed right. to size, whatever that is. And, uh, and then you put it all together and then you're back to the grinder again. And you're back to the grinder, uh, working your way through belt progression and then deftly shaping the handles so that it fits a human hand, which some cats could use a little work with, but, uh, <laughs> let's, uh-huh. let's try to make knives that fit human hands. Right. That's wherever, that's the right. user interface. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I would, I would highly recommend that if you're not exactly sure how to do that, go buy and use a knife. Yeah, exactly. Any knife. Bring your hands to the party. They'll, they'll agree with you or disagree right. with you. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So then you shape it to the, you know, the, the shape of the human hand so that it's comfortable in use and it's comfortable in a variety of grips, unless it's a very specialized tool intended for just one grip. And, um, then you move through and you polish all that up, which can sometimes be a bear depending on the material. And, uh, after that, so let's see, we have handles on after that. Usually it's going to go to my lovely bride, Jenna Martin, and she will make a lovely custom sheath for it all by hand. You know, her process, she'll be on the show one of these days and Mm -hmm. talk about her process and what goes into making a leather sheath from nothing. Um, and that's, that's typically about four hours goes into sheath work on a new yeah. model. And then I, I got to interrupt for a second. Jenna's work is really good. I've seen lots of people do, I mean, and I'm bragging on your wife a little bit. She, 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 she does really honest to God, a plus leather work. I've seen lots of people do leather work. Over, over my time, and Jenna makes it look easy. That's going to make it, her night, because I know that. she listens to all these, and so, yeah, that's <laughs> super cool. Um, yeah, so it goes to it goes to Jenna, who does the leather work, and, and she spends about four hours on a new custom sheath, and she builds it up, and then uh, it we run it through an electrochemical etching machine, which is a super rad machine. It looks like a part of a submarine from the Cold War. <laughs> it's just got gauges and lights and stuff all over it. Looks Some like guy a... named Petrov has right, it. Right, exactly. <laughs> so... ear, it looks like it should take earphones. Like, instead of a dauber, it should have earphones. Right, yeah. right, where do you attach the gas canisters? Right, yeah, yeah. it's a pretty intense-looking okay. machine for what it is, but that's what burns our maker's mark on, and we can either do a deep etch or just a black etch, uh, depending on the settings on that, as opposed to stamping in the blade, which we covered in the last episode. Um after that, uh, the last thing we do is we sharpen it. So I take it back to the belt. And this is, guys, uh, and this goes to customers too. Um, when you guys call up and say, what degree do you sharpen your edge at? Well, I sharpen at the edge that I can just barely see the burr curl over. And then I inspect it visually looking down the point to make sure that my apex is not leading to a too obtuse of an angle. Right. So it's not a 22.5 degree. This yep. is done by hand. Yep. This is done on a belt grinder. By hand, by eye, to to a standard. And yep. done by feel and all, all everything exactly yeah. to a standard. And the standard is, will this knife function for a long time the way I'm sending it out? And I mm-hmm. think that's the goal of every respectable maker. So you know what I mean? That's what they're looking for. So I don't get hung up on it. There are so many cool sharpening systems out there. Uh, KME does a great sharpening system. You can throw that on there and you can establish a consistent bevel 
yep. for the rest of the life of that knife while using that jigged equipment. Yeah. And before it gets to that setup, you know, the sharpener, mm-hmm. the, before it gets to that setup, then it's going to be in my hands on a belt floating in air and I'm going to make an even grind. It should look the same on one side as it does on the other. You know <laughs> that's what, what I mean? mean by even. Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean by even. And it should slice paper. It should slice hair. It should look like an edge. It shouldn't look like the bow of a boat. You know right. what I mean? All, all it it stuff, should look yeah. like, I would say the geometry, and I don't know why, and I don't have, this is unicorn piss. Mm. The geometry should remind me of a part of a kite or a sail. And I don't know hmm. why that image is what's always in my mind. Yeah, like, I wonder which part you're looking at. That, that I, I don't know, that. but it just yeah. maybe like a, a sail, like the peak of a, and I don't, I'm not a sailor, so I don't know, like, I don't know what is like my, my main sail or my jib or I, I have no idea. But anyways, it, to me, it should look uh, like a, 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 anyways, it should just be fine enough that it should slice easily and it should be able to throw curls on wood. It should be able to cut through deer hide. It mm-hmm. should be able to slice paper, shave hair, open packages, do all that stuff. And when it visually and in practice through our testing of shaving my arm, every one of my knives have shaved my arm, guys. So there you go. We call uh, it we call it knife mange. Yeah, I'm rocking right. knife mange yeah. pretty hard right now too. Exactly. Yeah. That yeah, is knife mange. Yeah, yeah like it's knife weird. mange. Weird. Yeah. I look like a mental patient. Patches <laughs> <laughs> of the hair gone. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's the last thing we do. After that, it gets cleaned up and scrubbed and inspected and looked over. You know, a couple steps we may have omitted is like if people want file work or jimping, then oh, you have yeah. to dig into your drawer of files, and, and you're there yep. doing that stroke by stroke. Hand by hand yep. and getting it ready. And, and the best time to do it is always after heat treat. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm no, joking. No, no, that's, that's a lie. <laughs> that's a lie. <laughs> no, before heat yeah, treat. Before heat before treat. Before heat uh, treat. I mean, someone's going to pause it just after I said it. It goes, that's what I've been doing yeah, wrong yeah, this exactly. whole time. I just hit my microphone. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's what I've been doing wrong this whole time. Oh, my God. And then yeah, they're going to spend I'm 10 years. so much money on files now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, so, I mean, that's long and short of it. So, any barring any file work, which I omitted, that was pre-heat treat. Um, but other than that kind of stuff, you know, that in a nutshell is what goes into every single custom knife. Now it may have taken me 12 minutes to explain this to you, but typically an experienced knife maker is going to run between six and 12 hours and then infinitely longer, or maybe slightly less depending on the complexity of the build. Mm -hmm. But just know that that is, that's actual bench time or wheel time or whatever you want to call it. You know, we could work time, shop time, hands on that particular piece. And it should have the customer in mind as they're doing it the whole time Mm -hmm. and kind of make it to their appeal. But that is what goes into it. Then it gets boxed up and it gets mailed off. And all of a sudden it turns into Facebook photos. So yeah. Yeah. And notoriety. Yeah. That's it. So (laughs) yeah, I, I hope you guys were able to get a little bit out of that and if there were any questions please feel free to hit us directly on the facebook page behind the blade podcast or info at behind the blade and we are here for both the customers and the makers so if there's a question or something you're getting hung up on pm us ask us in the q a box the question box we throw up on the facebook page and we'll i mean we'll do everything we can to help you guys thank you very much matt thank you for for that excellent explanation sir and we're going to take a quick break. Stay tuned for some awesome Q&A. Q&A! All right, and we're back. Time for some awesome Q&A. This is my favorite part of the whole thing. There me too. Like, it, it, it 
takes the least amount of work. <laughs> I think that's why I'm inherently lazy. <laughs> I think so too, but it also, you know, uh, gives us a chance to give our, our own perspectives on different different questions that you guys might ask. And they're always good questions. You guys have been really knocking it out of the park lately. Really since we started with really good questions. It's not like it's not like I like sharp knives, so what sharp knife you like too. Right. You know, and it's I'm glad to see you guys throttle back on the favorite steel questions. That's another one. But this is really our chance. Look, we spend the first, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour talking to you. In the final segment, we get to talk with you. And I think that is badass. It is. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. It's really cool. So, Matt, what's our first question, good sir? Uh, Jordan Richard Wagner. Uh, what do you feel is the most important knife design in history? We all have different favorites, but what do you think was most important and or influential? Now, this got boiled down by Lion Knives. And they had a little side chat on the side, and it boiled down to what is... Hang on, let me see. Let me click it so I get it right. Um, if it had to be narrowed down, maybe most influential American knife. In my opinion, do you? You? Me? Okay, we'll okay. do it at the same time. Right. Let's see if we're on the same page. All right. Marbles Woodcraft. Yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Oh no, I mean like we, we and we kinda covered this a little bit earlier in previous episodes, but but Skagel, Loveless, Randall, all of it comes back to Webster Marble. Right. And his classic hunter patterns, his ideals, his canoes, his his woodcraft. I mean like every, every trailing points took off. People People really, it was defined for them what a nice hunting custom knife should look like. There was no such thing as a hunting knife before the woodcraft. Right, before Webster Marble. I mean, the, the There were butcher's the, knives that people carried on a belt. Right, the type of rat tail construction tank where it's threaded on the back end with a, with a, hidden, with a, hidden, with a hidden brass nut. I mean, it's, it was extremely unique. Yep. I mean, and so it was, it was, that's, that's, in my opinion, the most influential knife. If you haven't Googled it yet by now, pause this podcast, go Google it. Any of the great classic knife makers... Uh, they all lead back. All rivers lead to the ocean. Totally. They, uh, their lineage, their design influence, whatever it is, it all goes right back to Webster Marble and his invention of the hunting knife. And that started with the woodcraft, and then, like Jim said, it evolved into the ideal and you know, yep. on and on. And oh, on. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the, next yeah. question. That next. was an easy slam yep. dunk. <laughs> all right, what do you got, Jim? All right. Besides the people, what are you most looking forward to seeing at Blade Show 217? That's by C2G Fab, F-A-B. C2G Fab, do me a favor, bud. Uh, reply in the comments with who you really are, what your company is, and, and maybe if, I don't know if you do vehicle fabrication, I have no idea, but go ahead and feel free to drop your company information in the reply there. So if anybody wants to find out what it is you do. And Jim, what do you want to see at Blade? I want to see anything new and innovative. I mean, new steels, new steels, um, any sort of new technology. Um, new handle materials, new executions in those things always capture me the most because, you know, I live in production. I live in production mode, like, all the time. So I absolutely want to see new materials. I want to see new ways of people doing things. Um, that and old classic knives. Like, like That's it. Like, like slip joint, old, old slip joints, loveless knives. I'll go to the loveless table, and I will just slobber all over the loveless knives that I can't even see because they're in the glass... Right. In, the, in the glass cases, in their sheaths. But just knowing that I'm that close, you know, I mean, it, it's, it just really, you know, strikes strikes my heart and makes my heart go a little pitter-patter. Hell yeah. <laughs> yep. No, I, I agree. Yep. Um, I I can tell you, like, I'll go by Kiku Matsuda's table. Uh, I'm 
don't tell Jenna, but I'm going to try to get her a Kiku this year. She's been wanting one for a long time. So I'm going to go by Kiku Matsuda's table. <laughs> and then I'm going to tell you that most of my time will be spent, if not interacting with the people, because, look, it is a tight-knit community. And we're, most of us are all friends and stuff like that. But I'll be honest. I'm going to go to the very far corner of the building, and I'm going to hang out and drool like a 15-year-old at a gun show over the old knives that are in the corner. <laughs> the guy has like all the old Navy mm -hmm. Mark IIs, and he's got all the Fairbane Sykes, and he's got the old 60s Randalls and stuff like that. And I and that's where I spend all my time, and that's where I'm like, ooh, if I sell another knife off the table, I can afford that one, and I'm going to take it home with me. But no, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I'm looking forward to see what Les George is dropping this year. I'd like to see what comes out from him. Nice. Um, I'd like to get my hands uh, at least wrapped around one of the Benchmade slip joints that we talked about earlier and kind of give it an evaluation for whatever that's worth. Uh, but yeah, you can, you can, chances are, if I'm not at the table, you're either going to find me at the snack bar or you're going to find me <laughs> by the old uh, military knives up in the corner. <laughs> Very nice. Always right. a good time. Jim, we have from Carice Bone. If you could do a collab with anyone, who would it be? Man. Huh. You told me who you would do. Oh, yeah. A collab with. But who would I do a collab with? Ah. Uh, you know what? I wasn't expecting to be on the receiving end of this question. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll fill in the dead air. But but if I but if I could pick up like a like a just a, a character that's all, not a character but um a, like a, a legend, I would love to do one with uh, Bob Loveless. Oh yeah. I mean like just just seeing what he would come up with, you know, looking at the knives that I've designed, what he could do with that design to just make it better. Probably would be awesome. I mean, probably like, learn a lot. Yeah, I mean, it'd just be yeah. a huge learning experience. I would think. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, just just hang out over his shoulder for like fifteen minutes. I think oh, I'd I probably can't believe learn so it's much. so easy when you do it that way. You know, the little tidbits you pick up. It's like, oh, I should have thought about that. It's so obvious. Probably would come out. Um, probably would come out on top if I did that. But <laughs> it can't be done at this point. How about you, good sir? Uh, this is an easy one. Uh, it's been a long time coming. It's overdue. Uh, Brian Efros. Of, of Efros Knives. I would do a folder collaboration with Brian Efros, and I will tell you why. Brian and I have come up in this game together over the years. We met each other at a USN meeting a number of years ago, and uh, he's a super cool cat, and we just hit it off. We lived relatively close to each other. He lived down in Denver. I was up in Longmont in Colorado, and he would make the trip up there, and he's like, hey, man, let's make a folder this weekend. Like, I'll come crash at your house, bring some <laughs> beer, we'll get some pizzas, and let's make a folder. And I... I not kidding you. I think we attempted this three times and it was a miserable <laughs> failure. And I was just like, you know what? Folders aren't for me. Like I just, I'm not ready yet. And, uh, Brian has really made a name for himself in the folder community. He does some amazing work, some pretty unique designs, but they're not, um, they're not goofy. You know what I mean? No. Like they're, they're his flavor. And, and so they're practical and they have his signature as Todd put it in the interview. They have a face. I can look at a knife, not mm -hmm. see the maker's mark and know that it's a Brian Efros. Knife. Oh yeah. He has that design down. Pat. And that I is mean, they're I, great. I think it's a mark of success. And mm -hmm. so, and what I would like to do is I would like to make good on my commitment of building a folder with him someday. And I'll probably have to cross the bridge, go down to his house, bring some tacos and, make a folder at Brian's <laughs> shop because that is the collab that I want to do. And that ultimately is the collab next collaboration. I think I'll probably do. Awesome. What else we got? All right. From Andy Teal, one of uh, one of our, one of our German friends. Um, so where do you see the greater potential for growth? Now this, this is a large question. So I think I'm going to start at the beginning. So everybody has full context. Yep. In my opinion, says Andy, the last decade has been influenced by two major developments, the great revival of traditional knife patterns on both fixed and folding knives, 
and even brands, and on the other hand, a giant leap in innovation and materials le led by brands such as ZT in the US or Lion Steel in Europe. You, Jim, bring us the best of both worlds with example with for example, high-end steels in the Bravo series and historical patterns such as the Hudson Bay, the Michigan Bowie, or the Boone. Where do you see the greater potential for growth? Is it either one way or the other, or can both not be separated? If anything of the, of the above might not be comprehensible, I hereby apologize for my bad English. I really hope that you get my point. Thank you. Andy, your English is too good. That was a really long question. <laughs> <laughs> we, we usually use much smaller words. Because no, it was well-written. <laughs> no, it was good. So, so what do I what do I think about that? Do can can the historical patterns be separated from the new innovations? I think I think they kind of go hand in hand. So, so I, I, I the traditional as 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 an idea was given to me about exactly how to answer this question. So it's almost like chocolate, right? You have your sweet chocolates and you have your savory chocolates. The sweet chocolate is the right now satisfaction, the the satisfaction of. Of, of seeing something new and satisfying and having that thing right now. But the savory ones are the ones that you still go back to, to, um, to, to experience what has come before. And also to, uh, what am I trying to say, Matt? So it, neither, what am I trying to say, Matt? neither one of them requires a more in-depth palate. If we're going to use the sweet and savory analogy. Mm -hmm. And so because there are nuances to both of them and to be quite honest in the contemporary folders and even the contemporary fixed blade designs, what you have is you have a depth of palate of taste that is in either the creativity of the lines, the selection of um, maybe more exclusive materials and the, quite honestly, and I can put this bluntly, the surface finish. I mean, because everything from 36 grit mm -hmm. to black wash to tumbled, you know what I mean? These are all innovations within the last 10, 15 years, right? So you have this, but this is the contemporary knives really, to me, are kind of the yummy face because they they don't typically last. And if they do last, they do fall into the second savory category of the classics. Mm -hmm. And so what we have is we have this yummy phase, which is, and I don't want to use the word trendy. I know that's pretty offensive to people, but let's be honest and let's call a spade a spade. What we have is we have the style du jour and it's ever changing. And if something transcends the style du jour, it becomes a classic. So, I mean, sure. it was a hot innovation to come out with the drop point hunter. Yep. It turned into a classic. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? It was yummy point. phase and then it got leather bound and put on the shelf as a classic. Mm -hmm. So that is the comparison between sweet and savory, because if you look at the classic designs and patterns, they are savory. They are a good steak. This is not a yummy phase. This is sustenance. And that, and I'm biased. Jim, you're biased yeah, to some extent. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, th this is what we make because our passion and our belief system sits on that plate. And so I, I really do feel <laughs> like it is sweet and savory. Uh. I think the contemporary knives are sweet. I think the classic knives are savory. I think that they are not mutually exclusive. And I also think they are necessary to keep a strong knife market going. You have to have both because the yummy phase stuff, the sweet stuff, it draws in new customers and it introduces them to the classics. And the classics keep the old timers around long enough to look at the innovations and ultimately accept them. So I think they feed off of each other and I think they're both, look, I'm carrying a 25, 30 year old Swiss army knife today. I'm carrying a 25 year old Swiss yeah. army knife and I'm carrying a brand new Quaken with carbon fiber and titanium. 
So we can't say that they're mutually exclusive. I can prove it right now with what's in my pocket before sure. I ever read that question. And right. So that no, is, no, I think, what you were trying to say. That, 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 that is what I was trying to say. It's just for some reason the, the words weren't, weren't forming properly. I guess, I guess I am having a little bit of trouble understanding the question. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, but Andy, thank you for the question. It is a really good question. And thanks for Matt for diving into my brain. And, no, and I probably missed the question. I probably just <laughs> answered it like, I don't know. Here's what I'm thinking right now, whether or not it's what you asked. <laughs> uh, but but no, that was that was good. So, and then we have a classic comment from Mike Lewis. Another question. Damn, I just woke up. Now I'm drawing a blank. Still look forward to listening. That's all right, Mike. <laughs> Knife News had you covered today, buddy. Mike's our uh, our, our Man field, field correspondent. Yeah. yeah, so he yeah. normally keeps us pumped up on the news, and Knife News had you hooked up today, so feel free to sleep in. Uh, hope you had a great day. <laughs> You're not fired. Pancakes. We still want you on the payroll, nope. which isn't much. and <laughs> It's pretty much just kudos on air. Uh, but, Jim, I do believe that's a podcast. That is a podcast. Good job, good sir. And we will catch you guys next time on the next episode of Behind the Blade Podcast.